Okay, I now have the great pleasure to introduce our opening keynote speaker, Professor Gwendolyn Sasse. Gwendolyn Sasse is the director of the Center for East European and International Studies, SOIS, in Berlin. Since April 2021, she has been the Einstein Professor for the Comparative Study of Democracy and Authoritarianism at the Humboldt University in Berlin. Her research interests include post-communist transitions, especially Ukraine and Russia, the dynamics of ethnic conflict, war, displacement, and migration. Now, current research focuses on the war in Ukraine, youth attitudes in Russia, and the relationship between voice and exit. Her book, The Crimea Question, Identity, Transition, and Conflict, that was published by Harvard University Press in 2007, won the Bessie's Alexander Nov Prize. And her most recent book, entitled Der Krieg gegen die Ukraine, The War Against Ukraine, was published by CH Beck in October 2022 in Germany, and it's currently being translated for publication in the UK later this year by Polity. Welcome, Professor Gwendolyn Sasse. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oops for inviting me to give um, the opening keynote at this year's Basis conference here in Glasgow. And I have to say in rather wonderful, but also rather intimidating um, surroundings. Uh, Basis is clearly, or the annual conference is clearly one of the most established international meeting places for area studies. And each year it really showcases the richness and the diversity of the field. It is an honor and a challenging task at once um, given the developments over the last year. And what I want to do is, um, first of all, briefly recap and characterize this war we are observing. I fear this is necessary on an occasion like this one, though of course you are familiar with many of the details. Before I then want to turn to the question which I think all Basis members will have asked themselves over the last year, in particular with pressing urgency, what is the role of area studies um, in times of war? What is the role of individual researchers in times of war? In a nutshell, I think um, there are four key tasks for area studies in these times. I think they are to document, to communicate, to build and extend networks, and to rethink paradigms and approaches. I will also, in passing, talk a little bit about what are the implications of this war for area studies with a focus on Eastern Europe, the South Caucasus, and Central Asia. And I want to close with my maybe small or not so small vision for Ukrainian studies. Please do not expect uh, finished answers to the question I posed. Take it as my personal and very preliminary reflections along the way. And I'm speaking primarily as a political scientist, so I don't claim to speak for the whole field. Over a year has passed since the start of Russia's full-scale invasion into Ukraine in February 2022. The experience of war uproots our sense of time. Time, it seems to me, has both passed quickly and painstakingly slowly since February last year. Sometimes in the midst of images of Russian war atrocities in Irpin, Bucha, Mariupol and elsewhere, time seems to have been suspended altogether. Perceptions of time and timing are also constantly out of sync. The extent to which the EU has enacted unprecedented sanctions against Russia, the fact that the EU has given Ukraine and Moldova a candidate status, 
And NATO's commitment to military assistance for Ukraine, including from Germany, can already be called historic. And still, for Ukraine, each stage in the decision-making processes underpinning this level of support has taken too long. A type of warfare that had seemed unimaginable to most in Europe has become an everyday reality. With this also comes the risk of the initial shock turning into the new normal. It is our responsibility as researchers of Eastern Europe to keep watching and documenting as much as possible, to communicate on the basis of our area country knowledge, including to policymakers and the wider public. A lot has changed during the last year, but some things prove strangely persistent. First, there's terminology. Terms like the Ukraine war or conflict in Ukraine are still frequently used in Western media and public discourse. Terminology matters, never more so, never more so than during war. How we call something subconsciously shapes our perceptions, the conclusions we draw and the actions we're willing to take as policymakers or accept as citizens. So let's be as clear as possible. This is Russia's war against Ukraine. It is a war aimed at the destruction of the Ukrainian state and the Ukrainian nation. Russian President Vladimir Putin and elites close to him have said so explicitly, the Ukrainian state and an independent Ukrainian nation are considered artificial creations. Russian state rhetoric has thus moved on from the previous myth of Ukrainians as the little brother to denying them the right to exist. I see it as our duty as scholars of the region to keep repeating these points and act correct and, and act against sloppy or politically motivated language in the political or public discourse. Second, it is important to date this war correctly. The war did not start on the 24th of February 2022, although the phrase when the war started is omnipresent with reference to the state. Russia's war against Ukraine began with the occupation and annexation of Crimea in 2014, continued in the war in the Donbas from 2014 to 2022, where Russia intervened militarily from the very beginning and escalated into a full-scale invasion in February 2022. On this day, Russian troops, which had amassed on the Russian-Ukrainian border since the spring of 2021, moved into Ukraine from different directions, while airstrikes were launched against cities across the country. Again, I see it as our obligation to highlight the stages of this war in view of the majority dating it to February 2022. One can, of course, also open up a much longer time horizon and trace Russian and Soviet aggression against Ukraine. Conversely, the number of voices who claim they have always known that a war of these dimensions would start has multiplied. A serious discussion needs to take medium and long-term developments into account while also guarding against simple and deterministic explanations. In the first months after the 24th of February, there was a tendency, perhaps more so in the German public discourse than elsewhere, to call the invasion Putin's war. This label highlighted the crucial role the Russian president plays in this war, but it also tried to separate Putin from the system around him and from Russian society. However, an authoritarian leader like Putin is not separate from the political system he helped to create and a society the system relies on for its legitimization. A war is too complex a matter to be reduced to one person, even if it is a leader of an extremely centralized and repressive authoritarian system. In my view, Putin is best understood as the catalyst who acted against the backdrop of several interconnected developments. 
Calling Putin a catalyst does not diminish his role. A catalyst remains the critical element in the explanation of why something happens, but it also focuses attention on what enables the catalyst in the first place. A more nuanced explanation of this war is the basis for understanding the policy mistakes of the past and the options for the future. Here, area experts also have an important role to play, both when looking back and looking ahead. The key developments in this regard, in my view, are the emergence of an increasingly authoritarian system in Russia with its growing neo-imperial ambitions on the one hand, and a process of democratization and westward orientation in Ukraine on the other hand. This dichotomy, underpinned by fundamentally different state identities built over decades, marks the key axis along which this war is fought. At its core, Russia's war against Ukraine is a systemic conflict, not a war about territory, NATO enlargement, or a proxy war. This is not the same as saying that the war globally pits democratic countries against authoritarian countries. Though often claimed by Western politicians, this would be an oversimplification, as we can see from the breakdown of votes and abstentions on the UN resolutions about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Moreover, in Africa and Latin America, we can see how European imperial legacies and a lack of trust limit solidarity with Ukraine and the West, while relations with Russia offer a type of insurance policy where trust in Western countries remains low. One of the biggest surprises, probably not to most of you, but many external observers over the last year has been the Ukrainian military and civilian resistance. More long-term developments missed or underestimated by most Western observers explain the power of the sustained bottom-up resistance. Ukraine is a country that has gone through several cycles of mass mobilization, in particular the Orange Revolution of 2004 and the Euromaidan in 2013-14. Protests like these are rare phenomena. Their repeated occurrence with hundreds of thousands of protesters in the streets are even more rare. Such events imprint themselves on the society's DNA and have long-lasting effects which reach beyond a leadership change at the top. They come with a set of experiences, shape attitudes and expectations, create networks among activists, but also among ordinary citizens. They increase the trust in others and become a reference point in the country's collective memory. Decentralization and the experience of war since 2014 further shaped bottom-up engagement. Before such an extreme event like war of these dimensions tests societal resilience, it is hard to predict exactly what will happen, but the component parts for this resistance were clearly in place. The fact is that there definitely was research on social and political engagement on the rise in Ukraine and the civic identity that strengthened over years. Thus, the issue is not that there was insufficient research on something that proved vital during this war, but that the research was not seen and heard enough. This has to do with how academia, politics, and the public discourse are structured, but it is also something we as scholars need to think about in order to claim or reclaim spaces for our research. Area studies is obviously a broad field. Not everyone is equally affected by the war. Scholars, many of you at this conference, have tried to explain to colleagues, policymakers, and the wider public over the last year why and how this war started and evolved. They have analyzed the developments as they are unfolding in Ukraine and the ramifications on neighboring countries and places further afield. A year on, those of us who are observing from the outside but have friends and colleagues in Ukraine 
have the constant feeling of having to do something and ultimately failing to have an effect on what is happening on the ground. I'm not trying to equate our position with that of Ukrainians experiencing this war up close. Nevertheless, the intensity and restlessness generated by war reverberates far beyond Ukraine. Many of us are running between media policy and public events, trying to explain what is happening, raising money, extending professional and personal networks, creating as many platforms for Ukrainian voices as possible, volunteering and trying to contribute to the efforts of documenting this war, despite restricted access and serious ethical concerns that go with this. All of this has become area studies today. There are also many attempts to integrate our Ukrainian colleagues who had to leave for at least a while via fellowships into our institutions and projects. Our responsibility does not end when the first fellowships runs out, run out. We have to admit to ourselves that we as individuals and our institutions are often ill-equipped to deal with the trauma and the needs of our Ukrainian colleagues we're trying to help. In the daily life of our institutions, we all carry on, though the situation is far from normal. Any scholar working on Ukraine moves through each day depending on the news from Ukraine. Tensions arise in our interactions and within the community of Ukrainian scholars in and outside of Ukraine. Most importantly, we learn from our recently arrived Ukrainian colleagues. This is an impact which will last. As a field and as institutions working on Eastern Europe broadly defined, we will have to navigate between further intensifying the work we have done on Ukraine to develop jointly with a critical mass of Ukrainian and Ukraine-focused researchers based at our institutions, adjusting many of our research projects on other East European countries in light of the war, facilitating new projects while also allowing space for topics not directly related to the war. The particularly sensitive topic in many institutions, including my own, is the question of also hosting individual Russian colleagues who had to leave Russia and finding ways in which one remains informed about Russian society, politics, and the economy without links to state institutions and direct access to the country. As institutions with an area studies remit, we have the responsibility to be mindful of what personal interactions are not possible right now and not impose supposedly neutral standards on colleagues experiencing war firsthand but also without foregoing important questions about what kind of research is possible with researchers outside of Russia. The same holds for research on Belarus and other authoritarian states in the region. War is not a time for nuances, but ultimately academic research thrives on nuances and difficult questions that do not have straightforward answers. Which part of our work right now, if it deals with aspects of the war, can actually be called academic research? How much of it is running commentary or activism? When can we allow ourselves to stop running and carving out the space for research? Research is conceptually informed and needs longer time horizons than the daily breathlessness of the moment allows. This is not to say that important research is not happening right now. Opinion polls are tracking attitudes and identities. Evidence of war crimes is being collected in many different ways. The personal experiences of the displaced are being recorded and so on. We're confronted with a paradox. On the one hand, this is probably the best documented war of all times. On the other hand, 
how these sources will be archived and systematically analyzed presents a big long-term challenge. Discussions about archiving have started in various places and will need to be intensified and thought about in innovative translocal ways. The value of area studies tends to be discovered in crisis situations, whereas in normal times, area studies remain an amorphous multidisciplinary field of study below the radar of many, whatever the particular region of the world it focuses on. Moreover, the role and reputation of area studies have varied over time. During the Cold War era, area studies expertise was more highly valued, it seems to me. It had a different academic standing and was invested in, not least because at least parts of it were part of the ideological struggle. Very few Soviet studies scholars had predicted the end of the Soviet Union, and many failed to or chose not to adjust to the new empirical reality. A whole field of study disappeared. For the mainstream and the disciplines making up area studies, in particular in the social sciences and nowhere more than in political science, area studies remained a tainted affair. Language and country knowledge, spending time in the field, became associated with biases and a lack of methodological rigor, though both pitfalls are hardly innate to area studies alone. Somehow, the image of Soviet studies scholars engaging in a kind of bird watching, observing which of the late Soviet leaders is still vigorously waving, was seamlessly transferred into the post-1991 era before new research could prove itself and take hold. There's no inherent logic in thinking that area studies scholars could not apply every method under the sun to a place that mentally continued to be set apart from the core region of Western social sciences and Western political science in particular, namely US politics and perhaps West European politics. Early debates between comparativists who were keen to extend, for example, the transition paradigm to Eastern Europe and area experts warning against, I quote, comparing apples and oranges, marked the beginning of a tradition of talking past each other. The number of those who had the skills to do detailed work in Central and Eastern Europe and beyond appeared small at the time when measured against the vastness of possibilities in the post-1991 period. This realization also embodied a colo colonial reflex. Scholars in and from Eastern Europe tended to be reduced to their function of knowing about and researching their home country, their region or their locality. In turn, for many scholars in Central and Eastern Europe, this expertise became their entry ticket into Western academic or policy circles. However, expecting someone to research their home country continues colonial patterns, and they have still not become history. The practice of collaborating with East European researchers by paying them to collect, translate, analyze data and not giving them proper credit through joint publications, unfortunately, is still widespread. Apart from the end of the Cold War, with its early assumptions of an end to history, there's been another trend that made it harder for area studies to claim its space, namely an increasing focus on the global rather than the regional or the local. This additionally uh, diminished the perceived value of area studies in academia as well as in politics. Those who studied transnationalism tended to depict area studies as an unwelcome return to the reification of nation states that make scholars blind to entanglements beyond the national. 
those with expertise on a region like Eastern Europe knew, however, that the return to or the establishment of the first ever independent state in internationally recognized borders was an important reference point. Paradoxically, the agenda to adopt multiple perspectives at once can be fostered by a particular local or regional reference point. It took a while for globalism to catch up with this reality. But in the meantime, area studies as a separate field of study was seen critically by those who could have embraced it. Area studies is not and probably never will be a recognized academic discipline. Its remit is and maybe cannot be clearly defined. This brings with it advantages such as conditions conducive to multi inter and transdisciplinary work and ample scope for research communication, especially but not only in times of crisis. But the diffuse nature of area studies also has its disadvantages. Anything that lacks a clear definition or boundaries is in danger of falling through the cracks, be it in terms of government or university funding or visibility within academic institutions and publication outlets. Ultimately, with few exceptions, academia follows its own logic that is built around the traditional disciplines. There are only very few area studies departments in Western academia and few permanent posts across disciplines with a regional focus that you can actually hear in a professor's denomination. Often area studies are placed in an unhelpful opposition vis-a-vis -vis other disciplines. At least in the Anglo-American social sciences, it is often applied as a pejorative label that implies second-class research. My own discipline, political science, has gone furthest in this respect, maybe economics also. Telling someone that they're doing area studies can also be a way in which exclusionary boundaries are drawn or reinforced. This may sound harsh, but it is the reality of many social science or polit political science departments around the world, and it affects the choices of young scholars uh, in view of their future academic careers. In turn, some scholars try to ring fence an equally problematic notion of area studies as part of a defense mechanism. This is happening despite the fact that political events demonstrate time and time again that we need but lack in-depth regional expertise, including language knowledge and familiarity with local contexts. It sometimes um, seems to me that in order to flourish in area studies, um, you need to have a strong disciplinary grounding in order to then overcome it at some point, overcome the disciplinary constraints that come with it. The concept of area studies is deeply intertwined with methodological battles, which are reshaping entire university departments, if not disciplines as a whole. It is important to emphasize that there's nothing in area studies per se that is tied to a particular methodological approach. The notion that area studies in the social sciences and humanities is only qualitative in nature is both wrong and besides the point. Locating one's research in area studies does not prejudge the methods one uses. A forward-looking notion of area studies confidently utilizes the whole range of methodological possibilities, be they qualitative or quantitative. Area studies should be well-placed for mixed methods approaches and for interdisciplinary research. The sticky label area studies is used extremely unevenly. How come that scholars studying US politics, a considerable part of American political science is built on the US case, are not thought of in these terms, but anyone studying Latin America, Africa, or Eastern Europe is? 
A couple of examples from my own experience might illustrate this point. A British political science journal um, a few years back desk rejected um, a, an article I had submitted that concentrated on Ukrainian and Polish migrants. It was based on a novel data set, but the um, editors recommended in writing that I should submit it to an area studies journal because for them it was too niche or too much of a niche topic. I'm not saying the article could not have been desk rejected, but for that reason, um, I'm less convinced of the decision. A few years later, I was luckier and a highly ranked American comparative politics journal agreed to publish my article on my own survey data on Ukrainian migrants in 15 countries worldwide. However, at the last moment, my co-author and I were asked by the editors if we could change the overall title of the piece by dropping the reference to Ukraine. Since February 2022, there has been a rapid increase in invitations, I'm sure, to many of us to talk at hastily arranged add-on panels and roundtables at the biggest international disciplinary conferences, places that would not have thought highly of area studies in the past, but now don't want to look out of date. Whether this will induce a wider rethinking on the part of different disciplines remains an open question at this point. Locking away area studies and mental and institutional pigeonholes will not do. Neither will a defensive strategy of claiming that a certain region, country or phenomenon is unique and therefore deserves to be studied. Claims to uniqueness are generally questionable. They close down the discussion rather than inviting to a serious debate about what is and is not similar across different settings. I, for one, have in the past reacted against being labeled a Ukrainianist, a label which was thrust upon me when I was based in a department called European Institute. Most of my colleagues did not see themselves as being in area studies. It seemed unnecessarily narrow somewhat marginal and strangely exotic next to a confidently named lecturer in political economy or a professor in comparative government. The label was used sometimes unintentionally and sometimes intentionally as part of a power game in academia where disciplines and institutions operate with their own hierarchies of topics and individuals. Moreover, it ref reflected only a part of what I was researching at the time. I had chosen to write my PhD about Ukraine, more specifically about Crimea as a case of conflict prevention in the 1990s. I stood and stand by that decision, but it was the idea of putting me in a box that I reacted against. In most cases, being introduced as the Ukrainianist in the 2000s was also a conversation killer, both in academia and outside of academia. My next academic move brought me to a university that had or has a separate area studies department. The majority of academics in this department had joint appointments with another department like politics, sociology, history, and so on. And this split on the one hand reflects the disciplinary grounding of many in area studies, but it also reinforces some of the inherent tensions and misconceptions in the daily life of the university. I only stopped reacting negatively to area studies labels when becoming the director of an institute with area studies in the title, the Center for East European and International Studies, or Zeus in German, in an environment where I did not feel judged by my mainstream political science colleagues on a daily basis. My position at Zeus, by definition, also comes with more public engagement. To my surprise, most journalists 
immediately introduced me as a Russia expert. Yes, I have intermittently done some research on Russia over the years. I've traveled there occasionally and follow its developments. All of a sudden, in a different environment, my fairly consistent focus on Ukraine in my research has disappeared from view again. And this is even the case now amidst the war. So this is a curious reversal in the labeling. I'm emphasizing these personal experiences as it is time to be less defensive. There's need, there's indeed a lot of first-class research on many Central and East European countries, the South Caucasus and Central Asia for that matter. There are structural reasons why this research is not seen enough, both in academia and beyond. Part of the explanation is related to the wider public discourse it is embedded in. In Europe, maybe the West more generally, the Soviet Union or the Eastern Bloc survived as Russia. The colonial perspective from Moscow remains written into remains written into policymaking nowhere more than in Germany, but indifference and a lack of curiosity vis-a-vis -vis the region of Eastern Europe was widely shared across societies in Europe and beyond. A term also used extensively in academia, the post-Soviet space, a seemingly diffuse area, embodies this intellectual laziness and informs thinking beyond academia. Even since February 2022, when the call to abandon this term once and for all has been louder, there have been others who immediately responded, but how will we refer to this region from now on? The answer is, in my view, very simple. Let's name the countries, localities and actors we're actually researching, and let's not try to group them according to one of their historical legacies. Legacies matter in many different ways, but not everything is down to one type of legacy either. It is high time to acknowledge this, and the war shows us that we should have abandoned the term post-Soviet a long time ago. Inside academia, there might be a tendency to underestimate the political salience of such terms and concepts, but our use, even if it hides a more nuanced understanding of a region, reinforces public and political perceptions and should therefore be treated more carefully. Ukrainian scholars are generally right to criticize East European area studies for their Russocentric perspectives. The question is how we can, in our research, teaching and communication with a wider audience, offer both a more differentiated perspective on many different countries, histories, languages, cultures, economies and political systems, and at the same time, offer something that does not fall into millions of pieces of a jigsaw that nobody in or outside of academia can or wants to see. For me, the challenge is one of combining the deep dive with lines of comparison and entanglements that connect something local, temporally, spatially, or thematically to other places, actors, and ideas. Many of us are doing this. It is not a new research agenda, but one that has acquired a new urgency and demands greater attention. Decolonializing East European studies or our Western view of the region more generally has become a rallying cry not only since February last year, but many more have joined in this course. The core for decolonizing holds for both area studies and all the academic disciplines that have marginalized research on Eastern Europe and other regions of the world. The term is now used so often by so many different people that it should not turn into cheap currency. In order to be meaningful, it does not start, we don't, don't start from scratch, but learn from long existent vibrant discourses on decolonization, post-colonialism, and so on. And we have to embed these questions in our practices. 
In addition to the change of perspective or the need to combine multiple and um, entangled perspectives, um, we also are confronted in area studies very often with unrealistic expectations when a crisis hits. Typical questions addressed at area studies now are, why did you not foresee this war in these dimensions? Though in fact, there is plenty of research pointing to Putin's agenda, wanting to take stage rhetoric seriously and studying Ukrainian society, as I mentioned already. The typical reflex in area studies from within is then to call for more institutions and appointments as the exi existing ones clearly didn't help much. There's a lot of criticizing of each other for not having done certain things while also being unrealistic about what is feasible. I have frequently heard the criticism from within area studies that we collectively failed as there's too little research on, for example, how the Russian army really functions and on other hard security topics. This to me is an odd conclusion from within area studies that we collectively um, failed. In particular, as even Western intelligence got many things wrong about the Russian army, why would we expect a certain number of academics to have better insights? The fact that we find ourselves in the midst of a war does neither invalidate research on societies and political systems fighting this war, um, uh, political systems fighting this war, nor should it posit artificial boundaries between hard and soft security issues or hard and soft topics more generally. This is just another way of continuing along the lines of weakening the appeal of and understanding of what area studies can do best. Turning inwards and against each other is a rather counterproductive approach. More productive would be a call for intensifying networks and links between different areas of expertise from area studies to other thematic subfields and bring them together, not only at an institutional level, but also through joint research projects. This is where, for example, different layers and perspectives of security could be brought together fruitfully. With February 2022, many area experts were catapulted into the media. Personally, I felt it was an obligation to try and help people understand what was happening. It is noteworthy when the media creates room for academic expertise. But even when space is granted, it sometimes, sometimes proves hard to make the most out of that encounter. Countless times I have been asked the non nonsensical question, what's going on in Putin's head? A wasted question and a wasted attempt to bring academic exp expertise to a mass audience. So even if there's willingness to bring in area expertise, it also proves surprisingly difficult for journalists not to ask academics the same questions they're asking their colleagues covering the war on the ground or asking these impossible questions with no answers. There's a lot to be learned in both directions in order to communicate more effectively between different types of expertise. There's also a slippery slope between expertise, commentary and activism. Up to which point do I speak as an academic about my research or as an academic informed in my analysis and assessment by my past research and country knowledge gained before February 2022? And when does the reference to my academic background no longer helps at all, as we are not talking about evidence-based research when we get, for example, questions about weapons deliveries and are asked to position ourselves vis-a-vis -vis national politics in our home country. In our own appearances in public, it becomes fuzzy what is research and what is personal opinion. 
A larger number of individuals, some of them academics with entirely different disciplines and specializations to their name, have gained space to share their views, often put in philosophical terms, for example, the ethics of responsibility or legal philosophy, why Ukraine is morally obliged to negotiate peace. It then becomes hard for any viewer listen, or listener to distinguish between the experts on a particular issue, issue and interlopers with strong views. Not every topic has two sides and can be debated. However, our media formats, however, uh, however, our media formats encourage this format, either by referencing objectivity or because it guarantees higher entertainment value and clicks. Thus, we're left with a paradoxical situation. There's definitely more space now for Ukraine and the region of Eastern Europe in public debate. There's also more time for and space for academics in this debate. But simultaneously, there's also more space for exactly the notions we try to debunk in our research for years with regard to Ukraine. For example, the idea that the country is split into East and West, that there are pro-Western and pro-Russian actors to name but a few. Speaking of about war, speaking about war in real time is a big responsibility and it requires the support of one's home institution and a networked community as the pressures can be considerable. Following distressing events is bad enough, then stepping in front of a camera and calmly explaining something is not what academics have been trained to do. War correspondents are a particular subspecies of journalists. Expectations and pressures confronting academics and other experts are also considerable in these situations, but far less discussed. An academic going on national television with more than a soundbite should be prepared for the wide range of responses our public engagement can trigger. Especially, especially the social media make direct and unfounded attacks easy. For every positive response, there are many, many more negative, often deeply insulting personal responses uh, all the way to illegal hate speech. Researchers cannot be left alone with this by their institutions and colleagues. Training and preparation is part of due care, and while attacks are going on, various coping mechanisms, including through mutually supportive networks, are an essential part of area studies. It is apparent that research communication um, should become a more important part of academic training and career paths in, generally, in general. It requires a preparation and is time-consuming and potentially nerve-wracking in the midst of polarized debates. It should therefore be an essential part of academic reviews, tenure processes, and other evaluations to move it beyond something that we do as private individuals. For shaping a more informed debate, more open access research is needed, as well as online platforms with information and research easily available. And we also need to engage in increasing scientific literacy. Education and research should be thought of more holistically. One of the most rewarding experiences since February 2022 for me have been my encounters with school classes that wanted to understand what is going on with the audiences of broad societal political education institutions and working with school book publishers on texts about the war. The latter in particular made me realize how many pitfalls there are when trying to distill complex information into the length of a school book text that can have a deep socializing effect. Let me conclude with a few thoughts on a vision for Ukrainian studies. They're both modest and ambitious at once. Clearly, Ukraine deserves more attention. 
However, we cannot assume that because of the war, interest in Ukrainian studies or area studies in general will automatically go up. If there is an increase in interest and funding, this is to be welcomed. But in my view, the strategic vision has to be to make Ukraine and other parts of the region part of the mainstream. Scholars without Ukrainian heritage need to study Ukraine and Ukrainian scholars need to study it in different contexts, also outside of Ukraine. And interactions between scholars inside and outside of Ukraine need to be con connected in an ongoing exchange. Put in slightly provocative terms, Ukrainian studies needs to speak many different languages, obviously Ukrainian, also Russian, Crimean Tatar, Polish, Yiddish, Hungarian, and many other languages. Further languages from other fields are required too. Methodological languages, a language fit for research communication and so on. This multilingual vision of Ukrainian studies cannot be realized by one person, but it is based on new linkages and cooperations. The further development of Ukrainian studies involves two tracks in my view. One is the increase in Ukrainian studies chairs and institutions focusing on Ukraine as culture, and uh, politics, societies, and so on. And the second one is embedding Ukraine as a normal country that features in school books, in all introductory lectures to the study of politics at universities, and so on, and in particular also in public debate. A war of these dimensions with mass displacement and huge challenges for rebuilding in the aftermath of this war will bring many other disciplines to the study of Ukraine, be it IR scholars, development economists, migration scholars, environmental scientists, museum studies, scholars studying other wars and their aftermath. This is to be embraced, not fought as an intrusion or watering down of Ukrainian studies. It is a horrific moment in time, but there's some hope in that many connections within area studies with and without a focus on Ukraine have intensified over the last year. Scholars are more aware of each other's works across disciplines, nationally and internationally. There's greater awareness of who is who, what colleagues are working on now and how new research connections can be made. There's ample space to build on, on there's ample space to build on this collectively and think about current challenges and future research agendas. Of course, not everybody in East European area studies now needs to study the war. But how we all live up to the challenge of studying it will shape academic and public perceptions of area studies for a long time to come. Let's embrace the challenge. Let's be confident as we know a lot about societies, cultures, politics in the region. Area studies is to be celebrated, not discredited or viewed with suspicion. But this can only work if we respect each other's work and approaches, reflect critically about our own premises, methodological and ethical challenges, and communicate more actively beyond specialized academic debates. Thank you very much.